You're listening to the Small Biz Ahead podcast, brought to you by The Hartford. Welcome to this episode of the Small Biz Ahead podcast. My name is Gene Marks, and I am here with my fearless co-host, John Adaconis. John, hello. Hey, Gene. How's it going today? It is going good. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here because we're going to have a talk about you know, crypto and, and digital currencies, NFTs, blockchain, all that. And before we even started recording this, you know, it seemed like you knew like very little about this, which is great because... It, this is an education, not just for you, but obviously for our audience. So I'm I'm excited um, to have this education. I'm hoping that you don't get any ideas and quit the Hartford and then go and uh, start up your own business selling uh, pictures of bored apes. So that, that, we'll hope that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> you know, ne- I, I never say never, but um, mm-hmm. no, I but I'm super excited to be here. I, I have had a lot of questions around a lot of these words and acronyms for a long time. I don't know what they mean at all. I think I'm probably not the only one. So um, you know, really looking forward to the conversation and, and leaving with some knowledge. Great. Okay. So let's get into it. So our guest today, um, and a big thank you in advance to Beth Kindig. Beth is uh, a lead technolo- tech analyst at IO Fund, which is uh, io-fund.com. Uh, Beth, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Really appreciate you asking me. So first of all, tell us a little bit about IO Fund, and then I'd like to know about you and, and your role there and how you got into the world of crypto. Yes, absolutely. So IO Fund, IO is uh, input-output, and it's used in all forms of computing. So the name of our company represents, we're basically a tech fund, uh, our tech portfolio for stocks, and we show you every trade we make. And our differentiation, because obviously there's a lot of voices in, in Wall Street, there's a lot of voices on stocks is that I've been writing about tech products in depth, big deep dives for over 10 years. And I did that in Silicon Valley. So when you give me 100 cloud stocks, I can come to you and say, these three, I believe are going to lead the market and here's why. And I break it down into very simple terms. So I'm not a product engineer. I'm not a computer science degree. Instead, my training was to work with those those guys and gals and describe what is the product that you're making and then go on stage or go to the press and discuss here is the product that this company is making and here's how it stands out compared to hundreds of competitors. Then I moved into the public markets. So I'm able to do this in the public markets, which is, is the market selling out of a super high quality tech company that has major product differentiation? Or is the product being is the market being efficient and this product cannot compete with the other, you know, 20 cybersecurity companies or the other 20 data analytics companies. So how do you move through all of that, but move through it to where you can have a conversation later on with your spouse or your friends who are not deep in the tech industry? So how do we simplify these discussions so that you know what you're buying and why you're buying it? And then our record has been very, very good. So I've called a lot of companies, their exact thesis has played out. Things like NVIDIA will be a big deal in AI. This was when the market was selling out of NVIDIA for crypto mining and calling them a gaming company. And I was saying, hold off. This is an AI company and that's going to start to happen. And, uh, you know, we're going to start to see evidence of that. And we did begin to see evidence of that over the last two years. So that's the kind of um, clarity we like to bring to the markets. Um, Got it. 
You know, you there is there, there's so much that I could talk to you about just in the world of technology. And, you know, you mentioned AI automation. You know, there, there are plenty of mobile applications that our, our audience would be interested in hearing your thoughts are. Um, but we're going to keep this just a narrow focus to just sort of the world of crypto. If Great. that's okay. Because yes. I know, I mean, I just wrote a piece in in The Guardian, actually, just, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, where I'm saying like th- that, you know, even though labor disruption and inflation have been like the big things that the media has been covering, in my opinion, um, the biggest small business story of the year um, is is blockchain and, you know, and what it's doing. I mean, I did a little research into it. I mean, the, the crypto market is like worth more now than $3 trillion. And apparently venture capital firms poured in like $30 billion um, into this universe. Bloomberg reported on that which is like quadruple the previous high mark in 2018. So it's exploding. And I want to, the goal of this conversation is for you because you're right. You're, you're, you know, your, your expertise, you're smart, but your expertise is communications, right? So I need my, I need, John needs, our audience needs some education. So let's first of all, start with blockchain because blockchain is really the foundation of cryptos and NFTs and tokens and all those other sort of buzzwords that we're hearing about. So Beth, tell us about blockchain. What is your understanding of it and how are businesses using it right now? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And um, I'm glad that you're keen on the idea or the fact that blockchain is becoming something we can't ignore. Um, Whether you're an investor or tech enthusiast, it doesn't matter. Like, it has proven that it's here to stay. Uh, Bitcoin reclaimed its all-time high in about three years. Uh, three years when it had a massive 80% sell-off, Cisco has never reclaimed its all-time high um, from mm-hmm. the dot-com bust. So just to give you an example, Bitcoin has been very, very strong after those sell-offs, um, comparatively speaking, and that's what we track. So price-wise, we're starting to see the market understand what you just said as well. Um, so when I think about the blockchain, I guess the easiest way, if I were going to talk to you know my buddy or mm-hmm. you know whatever, I would say I want you to think about uh, the internet protocol that transmits data and information all of the time. It doesn't matter if it's a website or an email. We're transmitting on top of a protocol, um, and we're in the fifth or sixth you know uh, version of that. So. I, I would I want you to think of blockchain as something very similar. Now it has a big benefit compared to the protocol that you use every day, which is the internet. The benefit is that it's decentralized. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, one example, I guess this is um, if I'm going to talk in extreme layman's terms. Imagine you're a kid cheating on a test in a in a, in a classroom, and all you had to do was get one other kid to let you cheat, look at his paper. That's doable, right? There's only one right. other kid you have to convince. Now, imagine if you had to convince the entire classroom to let you cheat. That would be impossible, right? There's 30, 40 kids in the class. So that is basically, uh, in very, very layman's terms, how decentralization works, which means that instead of you know the, the protocol convincing one centralized source, it now has to convince or prove um, that this is a va- this is like a valid transaction or it's a valid social media post that's not from a bot, you have to convince many nodes that are constantly verifying that what you're doing is trustworthy. Hmm. Um, And by the time that you add um, all of these validators, um, which are many, many, many validators, um, millions, it's impossible for a corrupt or fraudulent 
action to convince that many uh, validators that what 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 this action is is not fraudulent when it when it is. So the benefits of that is we see transaction costs go down. The only reason that I'm paying three percent when I use my Mastercard, I have cash in the bank, at, you know, let's say, and I'm going to use a, a credit card. The only reason that these fees are so high is because fraud is so rampant, and Mastercard and Visa are very good at fighting fraud. Um, there's other things too, like obviously we have the centralized, you know, banking system, right? So everything that has to go through a middleman, if you just remove that middleman and created a system of trust, um, then we no longer have to constantly pay the middleman. Um, and that has created a lot of problems. Chase Bank, if you go down to Chase Bank and you get a loan, you know, a credit card, let's just say, they're going to charge you 20% interest, maybe, if you're, you know, so let's say 10 to 20%. Right. Why can't I loan my cash in the bank to somebody and make that 10 to 20%, which I mean, wouldn't we all jump all over it to get that kind of returns? Sure. The reason is that we don't know if this person is credit worthy, right? Right. The blockchain can make sure that this person is credit worthy. Um, So you can technically peer to peer lend and you can do it in as as safe manner as possible. And we no longer have to um, make zero money on our cash in the bank because they, you know, they're not going to pay you to hold cash in the bank these days and turn around and pay, you know, and other people have to pay 10 to 20%. Maybe we cut them a deal and say, I'll only charge you 9%. We'll undercut Chase and I'll still make 9% returns on a, on a credit worthy individual who the blockchain has verified. Um, right. That's the kind of stuff that gets really, really interesting. I thought that, um, you know, and to add to that, when when people talk about the blockchain, I, I envision it. Now I'm an accountant, so I, I apologies for this. But I do envision this as like this as like a ledger of transactions that once it is validated by all the many sources that you say once a transaction is validated, it like it, it really can't change. You know, it's been it is true and it is real and it's permanently part of this ledger that goes on forever and ever and ever. Yeah, is that a good way to also explain? Yes, like the visual is the ledger. Yeah, so you can right. actually look at the Bitcoin. If I'm going to send you Bitcoin, it'll be recorded on a ledger, and I, you know, we can actually vi- visibly see that ledger. Correct. You know, I um, I just I was just listening this past week to this great. It was this great conversation with um Lex Fridman, um, who's a podcaster and MIT AI guy, and uh, and Elon Musk. I don't know if you you heard this conversation or not. It was like a two and a half hour conversation was really good. And I, I recommend anybody to listen to it. You can find it online. So he asked Elon Musk about your blockchain and also about smart contracts, you know? And I thought the conversation, that part of the conversation was interesting to me because even though Musk himself was like, listen, he, he's not a big fan of, of smart contracts, which I'll explain in a minute, but only because he's a, more of a fan of just like, if you have a contract with somebody, you keep it as simple as possible and, you know, try not to complicate it with the blockchain. But you know, a contract is another good example to use, isn't it? With, with a, you know, the, the, if you have, IBM is doing a bunch of work with contracts on this on a blockchain so that every part of a contract can be validated and held true and not changed either. And I think that might have business applications as well. Do you find that or do you, you know, do, do you guys see that as something in the future as well? Absolutely. And I think in the future is the key words with that. And so mm-hmm. like the one reason I always bring things back to the fact that you're everyone's using, you know, the Internet protocol every day is so that people who are confused or adverse to the idea of crypto understand that you're working with something that it will be very similar to the blockchain already. 
this is it, you know, and so now after we've transmitted transactions and data, et cetera, now we can open up the discussion to how is blockchain different than the internet? But I, I want to make sure we normalize it because I think that people from the outside look at the crypto tulip craze. You know, we had this ICO tulip craze in 2018 yeah. and it busted. But right. that is very different from the super quality companies that are going that 99% chance, I would say, or let me say 90% chance will disrupt mm -hmm. the internet. Um, so it's a replacement in many ways for the internet. And then you can think about financial systems and insurance and smart contracts. And the reason why smart contracts need more time, uh, first of all, we, we, we currently have a transactions per second issue with right. Ethereum. So we have to kind of like figure that out, which I think is going to be the first thing that people figure out because it's just prohibitively expensive right now to use the blockchain in many for many use cases. So that has that would have to come first in my mind. Right. And then it turns into how do you pull off chain data on chain in a secure manner, right? Because this is supposed to be incredibly secure. One of the main value propositions is that it's decentralized, so it's extraordinarily secure. So now uh, if you move outside of uh, like the Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is extraordinarily um, secure because there's not going to be any further development on it. But then when you take a company like Ethereum, where they will be building many applications, which they call decentralized apps, the question is, how do you input data and APIs that are constantly polling data? Can't that data become corrupted? So that's sure. probably problem, you know, I would say problem number three. Um, because we have to get transactions per seconds where it's competitive with like a visa payment. Right. We have to do, and you know, there's, there's various, um, there's obviously various Ethereum contenders right now to do that. Right. Um, I heard Dogecoin actually, although kind of started out as a joke is, is actually quite that much faster than Ethereum even. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's something I had read too. Uh, I'm sorry, which one? Uh, Dogecoin? Oh, yeah, Dogecoin, for sure. Yeah, yes. So. Well, I mean, you saw the big run up in Solana this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Solana is a direct competitor to Ethereum. Super right. high throughput. Right. Um, I think it's up to 65,000, 50,000 transactions per second. To put it into uh, context, Ethereum is like 30 transactions right. per second. So right. we got three extra zero, three, three zeros on Solana with how fast to, it is. Well, just to normalize this, you know, just for our audience, I mean, the reason why we're talking about all these different types of digital currencies, because there's still, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Beth, I mean, they're, you know, we're, we're still in the early days of this relatively. Um, you know, speed is really, really important to you as you have to complete these transactions instantaneously for them to be like, like, like a credit card transaction. But we're getting there. We're moving along the way. And I think that problem is going to be solved through a combination of hardware and software. Um, so what happens next? You know, I mean, you know, our audience are small business owners. Okay. So, and I'm going to turn this over to John soon, because I know he's going to have some, some other questions, uh, probably regarding NFTs and things like that. But if I'm a small business owner, um, why should I care about this? How is this going to impact my business five years from now or 10 years from now? Yeah. I mean, I think what would happen, I'll get to that in just one second. Once we can get the transactions per seconds up, or we've really chosen a leading network for dApps and transactions, um, right. all, you know, mobile payments, let's say everywhere you go, um, stabilizing crypto will be next, which is how, you know, we all know crypto is volatile. So 
Bitcoin loses value, it gains a lot of value. How do you know when you're going to buy that cup of coffee that it's, let's say it's a $3 Starbucks coffee, that it doesn't suddenly become $10 because <laughs> crypto is so unstable. There are um, companies that are basically stabilizing this. Um, and those companies have various methods of pooling together funds that you either can't pull out very quickly and they convert them over to stable coins. Um, so you're, you're, instead of lending to a human, you know, your, your neighbor or whatever it is, like to replace Chase Bank, you would lend your money to, a, to an, uh, an exchange that stabilizes. It's basically a market maker that right. stabilizes the, the pricing. Uh, you would take a while, you know, it'd be longer to get your money back out because you've staked it for the purpose of stabilizing the coins as okay. a pool, the pool of tokens, basically. Okay, so, so that we, would be next. Yes, yeah, so we made it. We made it faster, and we made and we stabilized it. And I don't know how long that's going to take, but I'm assuming, you know, some years, you know, a few years. But um, so, what happens next? Yeah. So then we would look at off-chain data going on-chain, and that's when things, I think, explode. Um, I think that some of the payments have been slower to, uh, you know, to be adopted because we just need to push more for the transactions per seconds and the stabilizing. But once that happens and we start to bring off-chain, on-chain, uh, things start to move really quickly. So and it, it, I think it'll be, um, you know, industries and Fortune, you know, 500 that you'll see a lot of adoption. They're going to see big impacts to their budgets whether you're an insurance company and you are going to be validating, um, you know, you're insured and making sure that they are, you know, let's say that you have claims coming in. This is one that we just saw happen through Deloitte, which is disaster recovery. So um, I actually spent a lot of time in Colorado. They just had a big fire. Mm -hmm. um, so my heart goes out to those people because I, I literally drove by when the houses were burning down. And they in this in this the the disaster recovery checks or you know your your FEMA applications would go through um, the blockchain to make sure everything's validated, everything's recorded. There's no fraud in that process. You are that person that owned that house. All of that is being recorded. So they're already moving that direction for disaster recovery. Um, it can just get too uh, paperwork heavy, if you will. Those mm -hmm. kinds of processes. So then, you know, accountants might be another one that start to move towards the blockchain because when you're filing your taxes, you can now have a ledger of who's paying taxes and how that's, there's just a lot of paperwork, right? Like with that sure. kind of process. So you can remove that level of paperwork by having everything validated on the blockchain. Got it. So it will, it will obviously increase speed. It will reduce complexity and, and it will significantly enhance the security of transactions which ultimately will will reduce costs for a lot of businesses. Right. Um, I can see where the future. Okay, that's great. I, I I don't know. I have so many more questions for you, Beth. I'm sorry, but I know John does as well. So John, you're there, right? You're probably on uh, looking at the Board Eight Yacht Club at this point. Is that right? <laughs> no, I've been <laughs> I've been pretty deeply listening, but I do definitely have some questions and a lot around kind of the NFT part of the conversation because that that's something that I I don't know that I can fully get my head around. You know, Beth, maybe just to level set me, an NFT is actually like an, an asset, not a currency, right? It's kind of the thing you're buying with some of these um, cryptocurrencies. Yes. So you own, uh, you know, a non-fungible token or a digital asset that is yours. And this actually really sparks up the metaverse conversation, which is, is our online life as 
real and as rich as our physical life. I think that's I don't I think it's greatly depends on what generation because I have um, you know family members that are teenage early teenagers preteens. Yeah. And they want what they want for Christmas is a digital asset. They want like a certain person in a certain game um, that they that they feel like they own or they want to clothe that person. They want to put, you know, different accessories on them. Um, and so they feel they, they, you know, they have something that's theirs in the digital realm. Um, so that piece and then I'm obviously not an, I, I'm not a big art collector. I'm not from Sotheby's or anything like that. But I think that there's this idea that art collectors and those more creative types um, have already been pushed into the digital realm, whether they want to or not. How many times have you looked at a painting in the past five years or thought to go out and buy real photography? Um, so yeah. they've they've been pushed into that realm, whether artists have, whether they whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It doesn't matter because it's happened. So digital art is becoming more commonplace than physical art. And if I can just interrupt, I, I, I just have to say, and John, you know, because I was I was talking about this recently with someone else is that, you know, Beth had mentioned the metaverse. And for those of you guys listening, you know, the metaverse is uh, it, it's Mark Zuckerberg's vision, but a lot of big tech companies have signed on to it of you know creating really, um, you know, it, like a, basically a gaming universe is really what it is, uh, where we have avatars of ourselves that will eventually mature. And these meetings that we're having right now, podcasts in the future uh, where we can all be sitting in the same virtual room looking at each other through our avatars. I believe if we are sitting in that room, if we invite you, Beth, to a conversation in uh, the Hartford recording studio, I believe companies will want to have artwork on the walls of their virtual recording studios that you, that their guests can see. And I believe that companies will want to have their own unique artwork because, you know, that's the kind of company that we are. And when you think you multiply at times the number of companies, the number of potential buyers out there of wanting their own unique digital assets for their own digital metaverse world, it's like this whole other market that opens up a billion dollar market uh, that's that's coming. Does that make sense? It, it It's interesting, Gene, because it's, you know, I it's funny that you kind of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has kind of claimed that term because I think it goes even older than that. Right. So, Beth, kind of to your analogy, it. To me, the the only way I can get my head around it is almost thinking about when we started to buy like tokens for arcades or kind of digital money for games like Farmville, right? Um, or I think about kind of the the idea of like The Sims or this kind of notion of like building your own universe, even with like Beanie Baby collectors. It feels almost like the new version of that, but in a very um, digitally native and and very expensive world. Right. And I have actually said that I think Square is being defensive by getting into Bitcoin because blockchain or, you know, blockchain is moving that direction over to financial transactions and payments. And I, I would say that Facebook is being defensive here, too. I mean, they're trying to maintain their territory because if you create these rich online worlds, who's that? What audience is going to migrate over? Well, it's your social media audience because they like to spend a lot of time in an online world. So I think that uh, Facebook could technically be late to the conversation um, because we've in the background had leading companies working on this for a very, very long time. Roblox is probably, I would say, if I had to choose a pioneer in the metaverse, it'd probably be Roblox. They created a world for kids and now they're trying to create that for teenagers and move their age group up for more TAMP, you know, a more addressable market. Um, 
I think that they have, like, if, if I was going to say to somebody, if you want to experience the metaverse, I would say get on Roblox right now, because that's probably the closest thing I can send you to. Um, that's fully functioning, has been brought to market, is being adopted rapidly and growing rapidly and has been a first mover. Um, gaming in general, like you said, um, is where we're breaking a lot of ground. But as an investor, is am I just exchanging one gamer for the next gamer? Like, you know what I mean? Like, where's the growth if they're just moving from Fortnite over to whatever? Um, Minecraft, you know, they're just moving over to a different game. Um, but what um, what you had mentioned about these brand advertisers being on the wall, I think that that's where the most investable opportunity is for someone like myself, who's a stock investor, is I see brands wanting to participate in the metaverse. So that's more interesting to me as an investor, um, because I do think there's so much time spent in the digital realm and ads are not, we, we, we've, we, we've brought ads into mobile, we're bringing ads into connected television, but I think there's something bigger that could happen with ads that we're already seeing with like Gucci and you try on the sunglasses or the sh sneakers with your avatar before you buy. Those kinds of interactive augmented reality ads um, are an interesting piece for me because I'm looking for new markets. And is gaming a new, is gamers trans, you know, moving over to the metaverse, is that a new market? You know, if they're already gaming, maybe not. But um, that's just one example that you had mentioned about the ads on the wall that I think is really interesting that you picked up on. Yeah, what's interesting, too, and I wonder, you know, Gene, I think about kind of a, a small business audience who might want to think about NFTs as a business model. Um, you know, and I think about the folks who might own like a local art gallery, Beth, to your point, where where maybe there's a world where they're both selling local art, but they're helping local artists get on a digital platform and actually, you know, kind of retailing that version um, or or how people even in kind of like retail or or consultancy or even kind of development might be able to start be able to create assets and, and kind of sell their ideas now in these kind of digital execution. It's just it's it, it's a lot to kind of unpack. But I do wonder if we're going to start to see the rise of kind of NFT dealers um, come from main street retailers, you know, if that's kind of what a future revenue stream might look like. Yeah. And I think when it comes to NFTs and the metaverse, I would say we're looking at younger populations, younger ge you know, ge um, demographics, because I don't know that I can get, you know, a, you know, an older person, you know, an older person to move over to the metaverse. Right. Like, so for me, when you're looking at markets, you got to look at who's serving the, the younger kids, really. And Roblox stands out. Um, Snap stands out because they've got the millennials. Um, so I'm always looking for like, who who's going to do this though? Like I need a lot of people to be an investor. I want tens of millions, hundreds of millions. So where, where are we gonna find hundreds of millions that are gonna spend time in the metaverse? So as an NFT art dealer, is that hundred, you know, is that going to be hundreds of millions of, you know, uh, users, users, viewers, customers, whatever you wanna call them? Probably not. So for me, like I am not an art dealer. I am an investor. I'm looking for big markets. I am not as keen on NFTs as I am on blockchain companies that are going to build basically what disrupts the internet at the layer one level. And then you have layer two and middleware. So I'm looking more for that piece um, only because I need hundreds of millions. And I don't know if I can get there with a NFT auction. You know, Beth, you, you, you know, you say that and I totally get that you would know, you know, you certainly know more about the market than I do. But, you know, it's like every generation almost has their, you know, their platform, you know, I mean, you know, slightly older people, you know, were 
creating celebrities and markets on Facebook. And then now, you know, you've got zillions of YouTube and TikTok influencers. Um, that's a giant market as well. And, you know, you, you hit it right on the head. I mean, it's, this is not the people that are, that are adults right now. These are the Gen Zers and the ones behind, they, they're, they're going to be living in the metaverse and all of these digital assets will be huge. And I just, I feel like at some point there is going to be a digital marketplace that young people, teenagers and kids love that where they can buy and sell and trade NFTs, kind of like they love going and watching YouTube influencers put on their makeup right now. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, just, I feel like that's got to come at some point. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we kind of have a contender potentially. The biggest NFT marketplace is OpenSea. Yes. Um, so that is definitely happening. And for sure, I mean, OpenSea has attracted lots of new venture capital. Um, so it's not that NFTs aren't an investable market by any means. It's just as a, you know, where, where I'm at, I need, I need something wider, more broader for my personal, you know, for the company's investments. But, um, so I guess what I'm saying too, is like, I know there's the supply. I know that there's lots of, you know, great NFTs being offered, sold, transacted, et cetera, auctioned off. But what I'm looking for as an investor, which is, key is where's the demand? Um, who Can I invest in that piece? And who's the audience, basically, who's going to adopt all of this? And then, of course, the technology is a big piece as well. So, John, what do you think? You ready to start uh, making some drawings and uh, selling one line? <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's something that's fascinating to me because you're, you're buying the idea of something real, but you're kind of now putting reality around something that's that you can never really touch, um, which... I don't know that I'm fully there, you know, I think it, I need to kind of absorb it a bit more, but it's, it's a really interesting um, movement. And, and it's kind of, if you don't want to live in the real world, you can, you can create your own world and, and every element of it, you know, and how those two things exist together is just, it kind of blows my mind. And if you're not a game, if you, if you don't spend a lot of time gaming, I would say the next adjacent market that's in real is really fu fully functioning right now would probably be social media like how many times have you been in a, in a social media world and you feel like the people you're interacting with are, are close friends like even if it's old high school friends or you haven't seen a family member in t whatever 20 years let's say they're on the other side of the you feel like you're with them and, and, and you have this rich online world so um, I have lots of people I talk to on Twitter. I don't know them personally, and I feel like they're either, you know, a close friend or they are big supporters of what I've done. And they're very important people to me, and I've never met them. So now that's a rich uh, online digital world that we've all lived in. And so now if you add, you know, where, where the person I talked to in real life today has had a similar effect as the person I was talking to that I've never met online. So you know, now can you create a bigger world out of that piece is probably like the best way to anchor it into the way that you function today. Got it. And I, I guess the one thing I, I guess I'd poke on a little bit is like, I think the idea is that you own this one of a kind thing, right? That that really isn't is tr tradable for other things. But when you're thinking about a digital asset, like how do you guarantee that authenticity and that even though you might own it, it's it's really easy to take a screenshot or to do some kind of trace or to kind of like duplicate something that looks or feels like something that you have. And I guess it's kind of if I was to compare it to fashion, right, when you kind of think about 
like a new high-end line by the time it hits mass market, like everyone's wearing something pretty similar. Do you feel like when we think about NFTs in the future of kind of selling those types of items, that the thought process will be similar where it's like, you know that you have this one of a kind thing. And if everyone else has something that looks similar to it, jokes on them because they couldn't get the premium. Or do you think that the ability to replicate and kind of copy digitally will start to devalue some of the assets that people are buying today as kind of these premium one of a kind things? Yeah, I think there'll probably be a market for that too, which is how do you watermark or, you know, copyright that kind of thing or protect it. I mean, we see that with oh, the name is escaping me, but the the photography, you know, the where you license images. Um, I right, think it's, like it's Getty. Yeah. yeah, yeah, where Getty images are pretty good. I mean, I think if you take one of their images and you go use it, at least in an editorial or something, that you're going to hear from them. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a market for that too. I do want to just while I have your you know your audience and everything, I do want to say that I am more keen as an investor on the infrastructure layer than nfts and that's because i don't know that the audience the demand is so great today that um it's where i would place my biggest bets if that makes sense i i think it's great it's obviously had a great start if you happen to be in that world you probably can navigate it very well and all of that but for me i'm i'm much more interested in how are we going to replace the internet how are we going to replace financial transactions with you know decentralize those um yeah so i just want to make sure that i'm not uh somebody who has invested actually in nfts at this stage i think we have a lot of volatility ahead of us they're very new if you haven't heard of nfts before last year then they probably have another three three to five years to go until you're you know, it, 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 there's going to be boom and bust cycles. You've seen that with crypto. Um, and so the chances that NFTs have a severe boom and bust cycle ahead of it is pretty high. And when we think about the infrastructure layer then, because I think that's probably really appealing to our audience too. So kind of on the ground as things, and we can go back to crypto, are starting to kind of become more part of the common vernacular to your point, transaction processes are changing. What are some things that they might be on the lookout for as someone who who relies on a transaction service to kind of make income to start kind of considering or thinking about if it's time for them to maybe adopt, you know, like crypto payments? I think about last year and kind of the, the conversation around some of the big retailers like Express or Whole Foods um, kind of accepting Bitcoin. And I wonder how locally and owned operator businesses might start to think about if they're ready to or if they should kind of build in that infrastructure on their end? I think they should be very open to it. And I think they should be prepared for whatever point of sale system they use to support it. So I don't know if maybe you work with Shopify, maybe you work with Square or Block or whatever you want to call it, Square. Maybe you work with Toast, whatever it is that you're working with on your point of sale system. um, Be fully prepared that these transactions per seconds will be solved. They're already technically solved for with some Ethereum competitors and Ethereum hopefully will have all that straightened out in the next year or two anyways. And then we're moving into the stabilizing the pricing with token pools from the, as market makers. And then from there, I think you're going to see it move very quickly because all of these payment processing platforms are fully prepared because they know they need to do it if they're going to survive. Blockchain is nipping at their heels right now, um, and they'll have to be very quick to that market. So everyone, I think, is preparing. That's good advice and guidance to kind of give, because I think, you know, 
this new year, I think everyone likes to start to look at some of their service providers every so often. So if they are kind of thinking about how, as an owner, they want to accept payments, I think that's good advice and, and start to have those conversations because it's probably not as easy as one would think to just switch, you know, kind of a, a full financial management system. So always good to kind of have in the back of your head. And it, and it probably truly depends on who your customers are. I think if you have that 25 to 40 range, that uh, demographic is the ones that I fully expect to, to drive this um, because they have, like I said, the spending power, purchasing power. And then I think that if you look at some of the sentiment around the financial systems coming from that generation, you know, we've all seen that graph of where income is relative to the cost of living. It's not very pretty. It basically cost of living started to skyrocket in the 70s. Income has been flat. Uh, who does that affect the most? 25 to 40 year olds. So that piece is being driven by that demo, uh, you know, by the demographics. So if you serve those people, you know, you should probably be more prepared than somebody who's serving maybe a different age group. Oh, that's great insight. And international. I mean, there's no, there's nothing quite like the global populations pushing for crypto. I mean, there's no doubt. We have, if, if we're looking at the United States, then that's a bit myopic because by far the bigger adopters, the fastest adopters we're seeing are actually low income people, uh, lower GDP countries. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, even more relevant given the nature of the currency, right? Because I think part of this too is it starts to really redefine boundaries and customer access. And I think as, as it becomes a more normal, you know, way of doing business and way of selling, way of paying for things, you know, your, your audience can likely grow too. Absolutely. And I, I don't have the statistics in front of me right, right now, but El Salvador gave out like a free, I don't know if it was $100 or something. I, again, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me now, but they basically said, if you open a Bitcoin wallet, we'll give you a little bit of Bitcoin. The numbers exceeded the within like a month or two or within the first couple months, it exceeded the number of people that have checking accounts. Oh, wow. Yeah. So people do not trust the banks. And I think the more that this financial system... Ha- the, the, the lower you are in your income level, the, the more distress there is. So those are the masses and we're going to see a big push come from there. And I think that that's really probably the most interesting part of all. That's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate the insight. I feel like I learned a ton today and I could go for seven more hours, but, um, but I, I won't. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just want to thank you for, you know, taking some time with, with my questions. Yes, absolutely. My pleasure. It's really nice speaking with you both. Yep, Beth, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Beth Kindig. She's the lead tech analyst at IO Fund. That's io-fund.com. Uh, Beth, just really great and educational. And I'm going to reach out to you separately as well because I have even more questions for you uh, that I might be writing about in the future. But um, this is definitely a topic, um, John, that we, we need to dig into more on Small Biz Ahead as well. And uh, th- that'll be something that we discuss. Beth, thank you for all of your input. It's been great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. And everybody, you've been listening to the Small Biz Ahead podcast. If you need help or advice or tips in running your business, please join us at smallbizahead.com. For my my colleague, John Adakonis, and myself, Gene Marks, thank you very much for joining us. We will see you on the next episode. Take care. 